Welcome, welcome to Between the Lines 123. Today's a different take on Between the Lines. It is going to be called A Closer Look. My name is Tony Manier. I, as usual, am your host. But today we're going to be looking at a closer look at the stories found within Christianity surrounding the birth of Jesus. These stories have been repeated for centuries. They are understood in a variety of ways. But to help us understand them today, I have my partner with me. Her name is Janelle Taphorn. Janelle has a master's in journalism, and she brings a way of looking at the text that I can't. You see, I'm, I'm somewhat blinded. Not only do I have to wear reading glasses, but also I have been tainted. And the part of that tainting, Janelle, is I did some work. Uh, I got my PhD in biblical studies. So now I see everything just kind of like whoop in that direction. Mm -hmm. But you bring a different perspective with your master's in journalism. So what I'm hoping you'll do is kind of use your site to help us see things maybe that we normally don't see. I'll give it a shot. You willing to do that? I am. And if I make big mistakes, you'll correct me? Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And also we have with us our sidekick. Um, I was going to call her our host, but she's far more than that. <laughs> Charity Gleason Davis is has experience in social media. She is just getting ready to launch her new podcast. And she is also going to be helping us in the area of taking questions from individuals. Now, if you are watching us on Facebook Live, you have the opportunity to send in messages. Charity will get those and send those in our direction so that we can have as least as much as possible some kind of a dialogue taking place. Also, Charity has done a lot of work and study in the area of feminism. Um, so, Charity, I am going to go on the assumption that that is a perspective you are more than willing to share with us. Hasn't stopped me in the past. That's true. <laughs> so, I literally am uh, not the rose between uh, the thorns, but literally the thorns between these two beautiful women. And so... You're in trouble. I am in trouble, especially <laughs> on this text, because in Matthew chapter one, the, the, the chapter that we're focusing on today is divided actually into two parts. In verse one, we have what is the, an account of the genealogy of Jesus. And then down in verse 18, we have the wording, now the birth of Jesus. Now, here's what I find fascinating, Janelle, mm. is that because of your deep knowledge of Greek, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You learned that in journalism, don't After you? After I learned Hebrew. After you learned Hebrew. See, uh -huh. yeah, where did you go to get your journalism degree? <laughs> Regent University. Regent University. Yeah, that probably taught you Greek, Greek and, Hebrew. and Hebrew. Yeah. All the way. So in verse 1, it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus. The, the Greek word there for account is the exact same word that's for, found in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the translators chose to translate it two different ways, and rightly so, but it's fascinating that it almost creates kind of this divide between chapters 1 through 17 and then 18 and following by using this word, mm -hmm. that it's more than just 
a word that is it's saying, you know, the, the, the account, but it's actually the birth of, the beginning of. So it's the beginning of Jesus in the genealogy, but then in verse 18, it's the beginning or the birth of Jesus. So it divides the story, this chapter, into two parts. And the per- first part is the genealogy. And so, Janelle, my question is for you. Can you just very quickly um, at least take us back four or five generations on your genealogy? No, I can't. <laughs> Why not? Well, my dad tried and probably didn't get that far. But, like, this is 42 generations, isn't it? Yeah, 14 times 3, right? I think so. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. So what I want to know is how did they keep record of all this? Fascinating question. Because... First of all, the closest thing that I can think of that when it mm-hmm. comes to this would be horses. Okay, why? Well, think about it. The Being able to trace a stud uh-huh. in his lineage or a, a, a very oh, prominent right. mare to be able to trace their, their mm-hmm. lineage back gives credibility. And True. at the auction, it goes up. True. So if you had been able to follow your genealogy, maybe your value would have gone up when you met your husband. I, I don't think You so. don't think so? <laughs> <laughs> that, that wasn't what brought him to <laughs> he, <laughs> that conclusion. You didn't, show, you didn't show him the genealogy ahead of time? He said, oh, no, by the way, here not. it is. <laughs> well, I think your question is really good because when you think about it, how did they remember all these names? That's, yeah. Were they writing it down? Yeah. No, they weren't. Right. So it's what, orally passed down? Well, what's fascinating is, is if you look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and compare it with Luke. Uh-huh. Yes. Totally different. Yes. Yes. I checked that out. Yes. And that's verifiable. And I don't understand. And another thing that's fascinating is in verse uh, 17, it says, from Abraham to David, there are 14 generations. From David to the, the exile, that's another 14 and then from the at Babylon to the Messiah, which is Jesus, mm-hmm. 14, 14, 14. But did you count all of them? No, I did not. Well, there's 42 generations. But well, if you take 14 times 3, right? Right. But if you count between verses 12 and verse 16, yeah. there's only 13. Really? Yeah. Okay. And why does Luke go all the way back to Adam? Excellent question. Because and Matthew did not. Matthew goes to who? Uh, he Abraham. starts with Abraham. Abraham. Exactly. Because if you look in verse 1, so f- well, before we make that transition, it's possible mm-hmm. that genealogies, not only within the, the writers of the, new, in the first century, mm-hmm. but even in the Hebrews, because if you go back in the time of Israel and look at the Hebrew Bible, yeah. you'll find different genealogies. Oh. For example, Genesis chapter 5 has a genealogy that is very, very close mm-hmm. in the way it begins in the Hebrew to the way that the Greek begins here in Matthew chapter 1. So there's this idea out there that genealogies were not to be understood literally. Oh. They were to be myths. So then why include it? Ah, uh, Excellent question from a journalist. I just continue to be amazed by you, Janelle. All right, look at her. Because it says right there at the beginning, it says the genealogy of Jesus. And then he, the first thing he says after Jesus is what? In verse 1. Uh, verse 1, a mm-hmm. record of the genealogy. 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham yes, but no, right, right after Jesus, it says an account of the genealogy of Jesus. The son of David, uh-huh. the son of Abraham. Keep going. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Okay, you're... What translation are you looking at? Well, read read the whole verse one. Maybe I'm missing something because, or maybe your translation is different than mine. What do you read the whole verse one to me? All right, the genealogy of Jesus, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Ah, there is the word, Christ. Oh, okay. So what? What? Christ. Why is that significant? Yeah, Christ in the Greek is Christos, mm-hmm. which means the anointed, which means the Messiah. Mm. And immediately you realize that the writer of Matthew is speaking to a particular group. Yes. Yes. Who? The Christian Jewish community. Yes. The because Jewish community. Isn't it Luke that's speaking to the Gentiles? Correct. Okay. So what a great way to start it out. Because not only is he speaking to the Jewish Christians, but he's also speaking to the Jews mm-hmm. who are not believers. So this is kind of a polemic to encourage people. He's pandering to the Jews. Exactly. And not only pandering, but he's basically kind of putting like right into your face saying, look, Jesus Christ, Jesus mm-hmm. the Messiah. Yes. And then how do you support that argument by saying that he is the son of Abraham, Abraham. which is the father of Israel? Israel, right. So that's why Matthew wants to focus more on Abraham, whereas Luke, mm-hmm. like you were saying, he wants to take it back to the to father. Adam. Yeah, all the way back. All the way back. That then that way the Gentiles are included. Yes, got so it. So this is a perfect way. Then now, son of David. Mm-hmm. David is the ultimate king. Yes. Right. He's he's the 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 man. And he's the dude. <laughs> what charity? What movie was that? The dude. <laughs> sounds like. Sounds like a movie I wouldn't watch. <laughs> no, what was the? There was a. There was a movie with. Um, Jeff. Jeff Daniels. Ah, uh, no, no. Say it again. The Big Lebowski. The, big Lebowski. the dude. That's right. Well, that's that's the son of David. He's the dude, right? And so everything is going to go back to <laughs> the son of David, who comes from. The son of Abraham. Yes. Speaking of all of these sons of, we yes. have our first comment. Okay. Um, genealogy always bores me. Yes. It seems to degrade women. Yes. That is our comment. Yeah. Well, wonderful. How do you feel about that? Um, I think they're awesome. Tread I, I, lightly, it's from your wife. Oh. <laughs> hey, Karen. Hey, Janelle, can I stay at your place tonight? Um, you got it. You and Dave have an extra room. No, we do not. Uh, well, you can well, stay in the backyard with the kitchen. I got a tent. I could pitch it back there. Oh, there's plenty of room for that. I would be okay. And a fire pit. And a fire. Ooh. <laughs> well, text back to the wife <coughs> that she's spot on, and I would agree with her that the majority of genealogies are very male centric. Uh-huh. However. In Matthew chapter 1, this genealogy presents five women. Yes. Five women. But only five. But only five. So now, Charity, from a feminist perspective, how do you deal with that? Because it isn't just the men. There are five women who are mentioned. Does that 
from a feminist perspective, does that change your idea or your views at all? Not a whole lot because, yeah, they're mentioned, but they're mentioned as tied to men. Ah. They're mm -hmm. not mentioned in their own right. Okay. Right? Good, fair point. So, and where are all the other mothers? Where are all the other mothers? Um, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. I, I think part of it is probably the culture. If you understand the culture at that time, to, mm -hmm. to even bring women into the equation is, is taking... Leaps. Uh, yeah, yeah, 21st right? century versus 1st century. That, I mean, you're making quite a statement. I find what's fascinating is the women that you would think would be in the Messiah's genealogy mm -hmm. aren't even mentioned. Like? Sarah, mm -hmm. Abraham's wife. Yeah. Rebecca. Right. None of them. Where's Esther? Where's Deborah the judge? Where's... None of them. So what are mentioned, though, are four women. The first one is in verse 3, Tamar. Yeah. The second one is in verse 5, Rahab. Mm -hmm. The third one is also in verse 5, Ruth. Yes. And in verse 6, you have the wife of Uriah, which I find fascinating. Why? They don't even give her name. Oh, yeah, they do not. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we know her name from the Old Testament, right? Bathsheba. Right. So, uh, so how would you feel if all of a sudden all you were, were was the, uh, the wife of David, Janelle? I kind of am. Yeah, but that, what if that was the way you were referred to? Oh, referred to. Re <laughs> <laughs> I, ironically, I am the wife of David. <laughs> But how would you feel if that's how you were referred to all the time? Uh, that, yeah, that no, that would not fly. But, but what's interesting, though, is we still see elements of this even in the 21st century, maybe not as prominent anymore. But what I find fascinating is Mrs. Taphorn. Now, you kept your last name, correct? I did. You did. <laughs> I did also. Uh-huh. My wife did not. Uh-huh. And so she... And Karen. So she, <laughs> in some ways, is still being following this by calling herself Mrs. Meneer. It's a way of saying she is the wife of Tony Meneer. Yes. So I find that fascinating that she's not brought up. Bathsheba's name is not brought up. So there's the fourth. And the last one is found in verse 16, Mary. Well, yeah. Yeah, but it's more than just, no, yeah. You kind of have to. You kind of have to bring her up? Yeah, and specifically her name. Why? Because she's the mother of Jesus. Yes, but notice the four women that she is linked with. All four of these women, from mm -hmm. the point of view of a shame-honor system, yeah. are tainted sexually. For yes. example, Tamar. Tamar, man, she, that's a woman who has a bun wrap. You think about what she had to put up with, right? right. Tamar <laughs> marries a guy, and then he dies, and she doesn't have a son. So the law says that she is supposed to marry her husband's brother, and he can't produce a son. Mm -hmm. And then the next one can't. So eventually, Tamar realizes that she's in trouble, so she goes to her father-in-law, and her father-in-law, Judah, who, by the way, is the ultimate tribe, because that's eventually where David's going to come from. Uh -huh. um, she goes to, to Judah and says, hey, um, you got any more boys around? And he says, um, I got a really young son I could give you. 
but you got to wait until he grows up, <laughs> right? So guess what happens? He grows up, and Judah doesn't fulfill his vow. Okay. So Tamar realizes that her father-in-law has reneged on her. Yes. So she says, i got to figure out how to get pregnant. So she dresses up as a prostitute, happens to Uh be beside the road when Judah comes traveling by. Judah's on his camel, let's pretend, and he stops and says, oh, that's a good-looking woman. Mm -hmm. Offers her a certain amount of money. Off they go. Off they go. She becomes pregnant. (laughs) And she's mentioned. She's mentioned here in the text. Um, Look at Rahab. Rahab, Jericho, right? Jericho. Yeah. And Rahab Mm -hmm. is the one. Who saves... Yeah, the spies. Yeah, she saves the spies. Right. She's a prostitute. Okay. And she becomes the father of... I mean... Mother. um, She marries Boaz. Yes. And Boaz becomes the father... I mean, becomes married to Ruth. Uh Uh-huh. And that's another interesting story. I don't see the thread of commonality. These are women who are very seen within a shame honors culture. Uh-huh. These are women of shame. Okay. These are women. I mean, for example, Tamar pretends she's a prostitute, becomes pregnant by her father-in-law. Rahab's a prostitute. Yes. Ruth. Ruth. Ruth, one night, goes to the winnowing floor, and the text, man, English sometimes, the translation is so nice. The winnowing floor? Yeah, that's where they winnowed the, 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 the grain and all that. They separated the, the barley and the, the chaff, the wheat and the chaff. They okay. were separated, Thank not barley. Wheat and chaff. I do not know that one. And she, she lays down next to him, and it says that she uncovered his blanket. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. There's more there than the text is letting us know. Seems to hint very strongly that there was some type of a sexual lay, uh, liaison. liaison going on there. True, so, but so, doesn't she redeem herself in the end by well, taking care of her mother? Yeah, she does. But she still would you want it. that? Would you want that in your pedigree? That your great 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 <laughs> grandma was a prostitute? No. And then the one before that. And then you got Bathsheba. Okay, well, yeah. And Bathsheba is taken by David, and it's not even her fault, but again, that's a shame. Yes. So. Yes, it is, but I think all these women that they're showing all did what they had to do to get it done. To get like, pregnant? What do you mean by get it done? Get pregnant? Tamar, like, her responsibility was to pass on the line. And yes. And she did what she had to do to get it done. Yes. Rahab saved the nation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Even though she was a prostitute. Ruth had lost her husband and her right. children, yes. if I remember correctly. Yes. And needed to take care of her mother-in-law and needed to take care of herself and needed to secure her family mm-hmm. and their well-being. And she did what she had to do to get it done. Yeah. So then let's take it one more. What? Mary. What did did oh. Mary do what she needed to do to get it done? Huh? They sound like resourceful women to me. Yes, but so what do you do? What do you do with Mary? Because Mary, if if what I find fascinating about this genealogy, you got these four women, right? Four women who are less than stellar according to culture. Uh-huh. There's to be shamed, but like you just said, they're willing to do what it takes to get it done. 
to be a part of this process of, of bringing this genealogy to continue it on, what about Mary? Well, I it think depends that's on, a, on what you know of how you feel about whether Mary was actually a virgin or if it was not to be taken literally. Like, I think the way you conception. see that makes a big difference in how you see Mary. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I for, I mean, to mention that, like Bathsheba, this also redeems her in some sense. Explain. Because she... She's the one that David killed her husband, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. But then, like, that was no... F I mean, she was involved. Right. Uh, not completely innocent. Yeah. She didn't, um, <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't forewarn him. No. But um, this redeems her, too, in that now she is in the line of the Messiah. Yes. Yeah. Well, the other and mentioned in the, the genealogy. Right. And right. there's a possibility that all four of these women... Mm -hmm. Are Gentiles. Well, we know Rahab was, right? Rahab was. Uh -huh. Tamar possibly is the one. Ruth, we know for sure. Mm -hmm. The good possibility Bathsheba was also. So these women are less than stellar. And I think that's why it's important is when you think about Mary, Mary is immediately linked mm -hmm. to these four women. So this was his attempt to bring the Gentile audience in. I think that's a hint of that because the end of the gospel of Matthew, there's this commission to go out into all the world and that it would mm -hmm. include the Gentiles. Yeah. But I think early on, he's not, the writer isn't willing to be that in your face. Instead, he's a little bit more tentative. But what I find fascinating is look at verse 18. We were talking about this idea of shame and honor, that motif. Look mm -hmm. at verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Again, Christ, or the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, before they lived together, and then the last phrase here is so, it's so packed. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And what, if, if you think about this whole idea of shame and honor, mm -hmm. And the genealogy coming from Abraham, that's a sign of honor. Yeah. Coming from King David, a sign Some of honor. honor. Yes. She is found to be with child. Uh -huh. Publicly, that's shameful. Yes. But look at the next line. From the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. There is divine honor. Yes. So that goes back to what Charity said, this whole idea of just getting it done. <laughs> Whereas in the eye of the public, these women were seen as women that deserved to be shamed. Right. But yet at the mm -hmm. same time, they are in a genealogy of honor. They're linked with Abraham. They're linked with David. I mean, that's, that to me is so powerful that here Mary is seen as being this woman who should be publicly shamed, but what... Okay, so I'm going to ask you a journalist question. Okay. What, in verse 18, yes. this would be the narrator speaking, correct? Yes. So that, that doesn't mean then necessarily 
that the characters in this text know what is actually happening. Correct. So the public knows that she is being shamed. What we as readers know is this last part from the Holy Spirit. So it creates this tension between public shame and divine honor, and yet the majority of people at her time didn't know that. All they're seeing is a woman who's pregnant. Now, there's a theory out mm -hmm. there that, and it seems to have some really solid support to it, is that Mary may have stepped out and had an affair, <laughs> and that's how she got pregnant. And I've also heard the theory that Matthew likes to embellish the supernatural. Yes. So. Well, and he doesn't tell us how it happens, does he? Right. He, he doesn't explain the mechanics of it. No. <laughs> he doesn't say, like, okay, there's. <laughs> Thank goodness. That's all... a whole different kind of book. <laughs> 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 right? and, and I, so, yeah, you're right. And so there's the possibility. And especially given that the, the genealogy is more than likely following the other traditions, and it's one of myth. Yes. Then immediately following it is this story. Right. And in these four women, Mary is tied back to them. These are women of shame, and but yet included in a genealogy of honor. Uh -huh. Mary is a woman who is shamed by the public, but yet is seen as having divine honor. And then look at what happens to Joseph, because really in verse 18 and following, it's really this whole thing is from Joseph's perspective. Yes. Jesus is sidebarred. Mary is going to play a small role in verse 20. Yeah. Otherwise, she's sidebarred. Yep. But look at what... It's all about him. Yeah. And what happens to his... And look, what, look how he's described. Her husband, Joseph, being a... Righteous man. A not righteous yet. man. I mean, we're not told how tall he is. Nope. We're not told if he's ugly or good looking. Nope. All we're told is he is righteous. And it's not even qualified. So in what way, what does it mean to be righteous, right? Exactly. Yeah. And if he's a righteous man, what is the, thing, the right thing for a righteous man to do? The rest of verse 19. Right. Unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, Joseph planned to dismiss her quietly. Quietly. That's what you do as a righteous man. Yeah. That's what any God-fearing man would do. But a supernatural force came in and gave him a dream. Yeah. Again, there's this supernatural force. And the dream says what? She's... Uh, Pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and right. you need to uh, marry her and name the baby Jesus. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, let me repeat what I said, you know. Maybe you, you didn't hear me correctly. A righteous man, a God-fearing man, yeah. would quietly dismiss Mary because that's the righteous thing to do. Yes, but... This angel was pretty. Uh, Wait, are compelling. you so? Are you saying it's an angel or a demon? <laughs> an angel that came to him in a dream. What, what kind of an angel? Look at verse twenty. <laughs> what okay. kind of angel is this? But he appeared. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord ah, of the Lord of the Lord. Yes. 
So now you have an angel of the Lord mm -hmm. asking Joseph to do something that would be considered in the eyes of the public an act of shame. Because if I... But how many people know that? Well, okay. Um, Charity, can you play along here with me? Uh, Charity is Mary, and I'm Joseph. <laughs> All right. All right. Charity, Charity uh, is hanging out, uh, according to one of the other gospels, I think it's the Gospel of Luke. Um, she's out hanging out with her friend, um, a relative. Um, and then she comes back, and it's quite obvious she's pregnant. Uh -huh. We haven't been together. Uh-huh. Right? And I well, look at... Well, you know that. I know that. Joseph knows that. I know that. And but why would Mary knows that. Yeah. Exactly. So I got a reputation. I'm a righteous man in the eyes of my community. So what happens if I go and marry her? She's been gone. They know she's been gone. Okay, that's the part I don't uh -huh. know about. Uh-huh. And How as a good, righteous man, I will remain chaste until we're married. So if she gets pregnant, guess who's more than likely going to be seen as the father in the eyes of the community, especially if I am willing to name the child. Because yes. notice at the end of verse 25, he named him Jesus. Uh -huh. He names him Jesus. Mm -hmm. Which means? It's my son. You name your son. Yeah. <laughs> so now what I'm basically saying is, this, this frivolous woman over here. <laughs> now I'm now I'm frivolous. Yeah, now I'm frivolous. Now I have entered into the realm of shame. In your head? And not well, maybe I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe. Come closer to the mic. There you go. Oh, sorry. I'm new to this podcasting thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So we, we've got a devil's advocate question here. Please. She's hoping it makes sense. Okay. If the women are the master manipulators, then it is it really sexist? At the end of the day, they got it done, so maybe women's roles has been misrepresented, misrepresented, and they are really the puppeteers getting things to happen. Wow. Ooh. Ooh. That, that's, that's really good. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our wives are on one today. Yeah. So read it one more time. If the women are the master manipulators, right. then is it really sexist? At the end of the day, they got it done. So maybe the women's role has been misrepresented and are really the puppeteers getting things to happen. Oh, man. The only thing I could say to that would be that they were misrepresented according to a woman's point of view. From a man's point of view, which that was back oh, then. It was well, a patriarchy. It still is. It still is, right. Yeah, that's true. So you're <laughs> defunking the whole Bible. You know, this is really awkward to sit between two women right now. <laughs> you're, you're right. Wah, wah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. It is. It is very much seen. Religion in the field of religion, in the field of Christianity, is still very much male-dominated. The majority of clergy, the majority of those in academics very much still masculine. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Which, that's why, to me, the advantage I have of sitting between two women is you're giving me different perspectives 
that I'm not breaking the glass ceiling. Yeah, that that I'm not even. (laughs) Yeah, it's not that I'm not even. I'm not even aware of. Well, I mean, just look in life too. Like women are behind the scenes, getting a lot of things done in a lot of worlds that they're never Mm -hmm. seen, because that's how they're taught. Just like, for example, and I know you give credit to Janelle a lot, but I don't think people realize how much Janelle does behind the scenes. And it could be the same thing happening here. Yes. Is that the men are the outside, the visual, and mm-hmm. it's the women behind the scenes getting it done. But particularly back then, the women did not get the credit. Yeah. Right. And Same I think, and, and, and unfortunately, an apology is not enough. But I do like what at least this writer is willing to do in the story, and that is link Joseph with Mary mm-hmm. in the eyes of the public as being a shameful couple. But yet, in verse 19, the writer still says that he was a righteous man. Now, again, the public doesn't see that, but the reader sees that. The yes. reader is to understand that while the public may see Mary and Joseph as being shameful, the readers are to know that they are actually righteous. So here's my question for you. This paradox, the paradox that I see here is that true righteousness Mm -hmm. is frequently contrary to the expectations of the community Mm -hmm. and law. So why is it even brought up? Why do we have to establish this paradox? Because often, as a Jew, what you would understand as being righteous, mm-hmm. the writer seems to be slowly kind of knocking at that and saying, maybe not so. Nice. Maybe what you see in public is not necessarily mm-hmm. what is true righteousness. And that true righteousness is something that is deeper than that. And I think in a very simple way, it's saying that true righteousness is how you treat other people. Nice. I mean, look what he does. Mm -hmm. And it takes a divine being to make him aware of that. Right. A supernatural event. Yeah. Which I think has really powerful implications. Mm Mm-hmm. Because often we see purity, shame versus honor, as being something external that we can see. I think what the text may be hinting at Mm -hmm. is that Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins, Jesus, who will also be called Emmanuel, God with us, publicly is seen to be born to parents that are in the spectrum of honor and shame or on the shame side. Mm -hmm. But yet the text tells us these are righteous people. Yeah. (laughs) Ta-da! You know, that that to me is... is, 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 It's quite insightful to to see that in Matthew chapter 1, you might have this idea. And 
Of the five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what's the yes. fifth? We could say the Gospel of Thomas, written about the same amount of time, written in the same period of time. Yes. All five have different, they begin, to, each book begins differently. Right. And some don't have the birth narrative. Exactly. And that tells you how you're supposed to read the rest of the Gospel. Okay. And so Matthew is giving us here in these first two chapters, Matthew is giving us kind of a, a Oh, what's the word, Charity, that would be the idea of kind of a preview of how we ought to read something? Kind of like the preface. Yeah. yeah, preface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Telling us, if you understand this... Then you'll understand the rest of what I've laid out. Exactly. And, and you could literally begin the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3, and it would make sense. And that's why I think yeah. some t people read books without reading the preface. But if you read the preface, it may affect how you read the rest of the book. I agree with that. I always read the preface. Well, also, didn't in some ways establishing the genealogy, at least this goes way back, guys. Sorry, it's been a long time. But um, didn't the genealogy also trace both through Mary and through Joseph on both sides back to David? So that they they tried to establish it yeah, going Mary's, through hers. Mary's genealogy is, it, I don't remember where it Traces that, back to yeah. David as well. Right. Right. So that they can establish that right. even if Joseph is not the father, then the line still went through David, but it also goes through David if you look at Joseph as the father. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Just checking. I thought I remembered that way. Yeah. And so that may be, too, why we're bringing some of the women in. Yes. I just find it fascinating that the writer could have brought in some of the more appropriate, ideal women. Right. Um. And the writer chose these individuals. The properly behaved women? Yes. Which were <laughs> still getting it done. <laughs> but, but, well, he could have left them out altogether. Yes. The women. And I think, so why did he even mention it? I think personally because it ties Mary back to those four. And you're supposed to see Mary in the line of that. And I truly believe that... Man, I, mean, I can't say I truly believe because none of us really know what the original author right. truly meant. But I think there seems to be hints that it could be understood mm -hmm. as this whole idea of shame and honor. And Mary was, was probably perceived in that way. And in some ways, Jesus also was seen in that way, not only because of his parents, yeah. but because of the kind of person he was. I mean, look at what he's accused of doing. Right. You know, he's hanging out with... Sinners. Women. Tax collectors. Women. Sinners. Women. <laughs> <laughs> so we have another comment. Yes. Uh, so this person's theory yes. is that God, whatever that means to any of us, is a female because nobody gives God enough credit but rather blame. Uh, whenever something goes wrong, they, God gets blamed. Sounds pretty similar to women in society today. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... Nice. You know, that there is such a, okay, well, before I say that, I, I, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a drink of water. You explain why you just said nice, Janelle. Because <laughs> I'm keeping score. <laughs> yay, yay for women. I, there's a there's a thing called feminist theology. Okay. 
There's also um, looking at biblical studies from a feminist perspective, and I applaud it. I want to go take that class. Yeah, 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 but I won't teach it. Uh, <laughs> I, and I, I applaud it because, again, there is such a bias. Um, and I don't think it's, uh, it's done on purpose, but, you know, you, you have a way of looking at life. You know, white, male. Mm -hmm. I, there's a way that I look at life. There's a way that I go into my field of biblical studies that I look at it. And I think the advantage is that if we can step back and we can allow feminist uh, women to be able to look at life from their perspective, and then even this idea of looking at God from a perspective of, of being a female. Right doesn't mean that God is, I personally don't believe God is male, and I personally don't believe God is female. Mm -hmm. I think God is beyond whatever gender that is. Mm -hmm. But it does help us have a perspective by seeing God as male and then seeing God as female. I think this, this, uh, this comment's spot on. It gives us a different way of, of looking at the text because, let's be honest, ultimately what we're trying to do is make sense of an ancient text and saying, mm -hmm. what in the world does this mean for us today? Yes. <laughs> and seeing it from all these different anchors, angles is pretty powerful. It's great. All right. Our time is coming to a close. Any other comments? That was the last one. That was the last we one. We do have a lot of Go Tonys and people chiming in that they're here with us. Good. So. Great. Well, Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, we're going to try something uh, next week. So next week at 1015, if you listen to this live and, and you enjoyed it, please tune back in. Next Sunday at 10.15, um, would love to have you join us again. But we're going to try something different. I talked to Charity about this, and I think we might be able to get it happened, is that there are people that may be watching us on YouTube mm -hmm. or on BoxCast through the Church of the, Church of the Beatitudes website. website. Mm -hmm. I think what we're going to try to do is figure out a way to get out a phone number so that people can text from their phones to make comments. So that way you don't have to be just necessarily on Facebook. You can be on YouTube. You could be right. on the church's <clears throat> website. All right. And that way you could text in your and comment. your comment and then Charity would get that on her computer. So that's something we're going to try to do. Okay. All right. As we come closer to Christmas, we are now in the season. Today is the first season in the Christian church. It's called Advent. Another way of looking at it is we are 26 days from Christmas. <laughs> And so as we come, I think it's appropriate to take the time to step back and look at this ancient text. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what perspective you bring into the table. If you're a Christian, Muslim, Hindu, this is still fun to look at this ancient document and try to understand what the writers were doing. And then ask that question, what in the world does that mean for us today? And it's, re it's restoring hope. Yes. In the process. Yes. So that's what we'll continue on. Great. Next Sunday. Thank you again, Charity, Janelle. And I Thank look you. forward to joining the two of you next Sunday at 1015. We'll be here. All right. Yes, we will. Thanks so much for listening to Between the Lines. If you like the show, please do a few things for us. Go to social media and share about the episode and why you liked it. And go to the podcast app and write a review and give us a rating. These things are all so helpful to the show. Once again, thanks for listening.